Very cool. So because of uh, school, my school schedule, I have, I'm, I'm literally like stressing big time right now because I have to take uh, quantitative research, which is math and statistics at the PhD level. I start my class Friday night and the books are ridiculous. Uh, the title of the book uh, made me sweat. How many, I mentioned this to the College of Church Leadership yesterday, how many love the Lord, you love people, but you hate math? Let me see your hands. I mean, you can, you can actually have both feelings. I'm sorry for all my math teachers, I'm, I'm sorry. But for some of us, it does not come super simple. Uh, so this is one of the classes that was ominous, looming on the horizon, and I have to start my class on Friday night too. So. That means that this week, uh, on this Friday, Mrs. H will be speaking again in chapel on Friday. So, great lady, great lady, good stuff. Um, thank you, Hunter, for the kind words. I just want to tell you some, some pretty cool news. After chapel today, we have an all-faculty and staff meeting that uh, I get to lead at the beginning of the semester to kind of give an update at the beginning and end of each semester. And one of the things I'm going to share with them, I just want to share with you, because this relates to you. I was talking with somebody recently that is transferring to North Central. Uh, they're gonna be transferring this next year. And they're transferring from a Christian university here for one simple reason, is that the reputation of this university, which has always been, but is even, uh, it just feels like it's being punctuated, echoed, championed, uh, being made aware across the country at a deeper level is that they said North Central is the most spiritually serious university in the country. And I thought, you're absolutely true. Um, and I mean that from the depth of my heart. I get to travel, I get to be in a lot of places, a lot of schools, seeing a lot of stuff in my life. This is the most spiritually serious uh, university that I've ever seen in my life is North Central. Now, I don't say that to make us prideful because the risk in that it's a terrible risk to think that of yourself. Uh, so let another person boast that not of your own lips. So you don't walk around saying, well, yeah, I'm a totally the most spiritually serious president in the United States. No, that would sound like an idiot. Other people, because that's not true, by the way. But our university as a collective, as a group, um, is robust and the, the dominant power and priority of our school is, is Christ. And no matter what any of the colleges that we are all different parts of in this school, we're all part of this beautiful university that has, and the faculty, to see the faculty as worshipers and not disengaged is so powerful. It really just releases something. So, but people, people can say, hey, lots of nice stuff, but here's how you know that there is, is a dramatic increase going on in our university. So I gotta find it here on my phone. Boom, I just had it, okay. So last year in 2016 and 17, we'll call that last year, there was 538 individuals and organizations, individuals and organizations that gave money to our university. Every university is dependent upon its alumni, its donors, uh, to support the university, to give to endowments, to give to scholarships. We're no different. So last year, we had 538 individuals and organizations. We had 136 organizations and 402 individuals. Last, oh, my son is calling me right now, Spencer, so I gotta, I'll hit decline. 
No, I, I should have. <laughs> Tell Spence that I was preaching, so I'll call him back in a minute. Um, so last year, 538 total individuals and organizations. As of right now, halfway through this year, we have 706 individuals and organizations. So we went for, we've gone from 136 organizations to 158 organizations plus 22. That's churches, people out there that are engaging in giving. And we've gone from 402 individuals to 548 individuals. We've grown by 146. Our engagement has grown by 168 organizations. And you know why? Do you know why? Because, because they're hearing great things about you. They're hearing great things about our school. And the power of redemptive language is everything. And so I just want to tell you that because of your focus and what you're doing as students, it is the easiest story to tell people across the country. But people are believing in our school and they're believing in you in dramatic numbers of engagement. That, that's very, very exciting. So now I want to talk to you for just a moment about another topic. I want to talk to you about breastfeeding. Okay, here we go. What? We're talking about engagement, so you just engaged with me now. No, breastfeeding. I want to I tell you something very powerful about breastfeeding and how it totally relates to all of us and you in this room. We're always asking people to up their commitment uh, to something. I want you to be more committed, 2018, making a commitment. Um, and the Lord kind of dropped this in my heart after a drive with my daughter, who is a new mom. We were home for the Christmas, and Jocelyn and I were talking. She's a former North Central grad, and we were talking about um, her new baby, Olivia. Um, we call her Birdie and, or Olive or all these little nicknames we're all settling on. She's a total doll. And Jocelyn and I were talking about uh, this, um, and then we started talking about nursing and the whole bit. And it reminded me of a research paper, and I asked her about this, and she said, I've heard this too, and I did a little bit more research and found just an explosive reality about everything in the context of breastfeeding. And so here it is. I did not know until this last year that a mother, the breast milk of a mother, changes its chemistry based on the need of the infant, not to grow, but if there's a sickness inside the child, the mother's breast milk changes the production of leukocytes, which are little white blood cells that fight infection. When there's an infection in the baby, the mother's breast milk automatically changes into this powerful immunity um, by adding billions of leukocytes these white blood cells are put into the breast milk to go into the child to fight the disease or the infection. So the big question is, how does the mother's body know this? And so there was a researcher in Australia about 10 years ago that tested this and has developed a scientific accepted theory that, that recognizes that the saliva of an infant passes back into the mother's body when there's the act of breastfeeding. The saliva vacuums back into the mom's body. 
inside that saliva are all of the signals of sickness. The mother's body then reads the saliva of the infant, then remanufactures her breast milk to send the immunity and the antidote back into the baby. They tested this, and literally the color of the milk changes when the baby has an infection. And the color change is because of the added leukocytes. Now watch this. <clears throat> they took two sick little infants. One of the babies simply drank milk that had been pumped from the mother's breast and fed in a bottle, pumped breast milk in a bottle given to the baby. The other baby was nursing. The nursing mother's milk dramatically changed but the mother of the sick baby drinking the pump breast milk, her milk did not change. The only thing that brought this new immunity and the change to the mother's body was the act of nursing. Now there's nutrition in the pumped milk, but it doesn't have the same power. It doesn't transmit the same immunity into that baby. There's something good about that milk, but the full power and meaning of that breast milk is not transmitted to the baby. Now, both of those babies are committed to their mother and both of those mothers are committed to the baby. But only one of those babies is walking in intimacy, not commitment. Intimacy, not commitment. I've never seen the gap between commitment and intimacy in my life. So 2018 is not a year of commitment. It's a year of intimacy with the Lord because there's people that sit side by side and the Bible works for them, but it doesn't work for me. I hear sermons, which in a way is pumped out sermons. There's a benefit, there's nutrition, but it's not an act of intimacy between you and Jesus when you simply sit here and hear me preach. So there is something that can only happen in the power of God's word being transmitted to a disciple, to a son or daughter that walks in intimacy with Jesus. Now the Bible takes on a whole different power, authority, and meaning, texture, and taste. It goes directly to the woundedness, to the lie of the enemy that's inside of you, to the pain, to the past. The Bible works differently when you walk in intimacy with God rather than just hearing it through a sermon. That's why you can spend your whole life going, man, I just can't seem to get the word of God to address my need. It's good, I feel encouraged, it's powerful, good word, president, good word. totally different when as 1 Peter 2.2 tells us that we walk in that posture of the nursing child with the Lord and his word in our life. Somewhere you got to take it from commitment to intimacy. And until that shift or that gap is closed, there will be an element of Christianity that is utterly elusive and impotent and powerless. Your immunity against Satan just doesn't 
activate quite like it does for the person next to you. And you're wondering why. We both go here. We both go to chapel. We both go to church. We're both committed. I promise you that person walks in an intimacy with the Lord and his word. That's totally different than the public setting with the word. So that is your breast milk truth for today. Hallelujah. Um, I want to give you, I always like to give you four or five little warm-ups on leadership. I want to share a message this morning called Abstinence from Wine. Uh, Abstinence from Wine. And uh, you'll get this in just a moment. These first five points have nothing to do with abstinence from wine, um, but they're just about leadership. And I just want to reiterate to you that number one, your destiny is not about, your destiny is about your decisions, not your talents. The most talented person in this room, if you keep making bad decisions, your destiny will never emerge. Whatever God created you to be, the place he wants you to go, the people he wants you to meet, whatever your destiny is, we use that word freely in this generation. It's a powerful word. It's a true kingdom word. But I'm telling you, it's not predicated on your talent. It's all predicated on your decision making. If you make poor decisions or when you make a poor decision, if your second decision, really all of our lives collapse, not because of the first choice, it's always the second choice. Um, The second choice not to humble ourselves and seek counsel or admit the wrong. It's our second decisions that ruin our life, not our first ones. Because if we're humble, we can just about get out of any poor early decision that we make. Something comes out of our mouth, that we wish we could have back. We make a decision here or there with our life. We go, that was a bad decision. The longer you sit on it in pride and let that decision settle and then just kind of permeate throughout your relationships, um, the more difficult it is to get that portion of your life back. You got to be quick to humble yourself. So it's the second choice, not, that's why life isn't about second chances. It is about second choices. I'll get to this at the very end too. So number two, the first goal of a leader is to set standards, not goals. You got to determine this is my standard, not my goal. Goals are important, but not nearly as important as standards. What bonds teams together is their ability to believe the same thing and have the same standard. Let's say you're three powerhouse real estate agents, and you're about to close a big deal. Earlier that year on a whiteboard, you said, we want to add $10 million to our portfolio. You have a common goal. All three people said, we're adding $10 million to the company portfolio. Well, three months later, you're about to close that $10 million deal to add to the portfolio. Your goal is about to be realized. All of a sudden, at the very last moment, one of the partners of the three tells a lie to the customer. He tells the client a lie. The other two know that the guy's lying, but they're about to reach their goal, but they don't have the same standard. What happens then is there's a Great conflict, not because the goals aren't similar, but the standards aren't similar. And so great teams, whether a university, whatever you lead, whatever you serve, it's all about the standard. It's not about the goal that we are going to adhere to a common set of values and ethics, which we believe in this house is the word of God in our life. But the standard is more important than the goal. Number three, never chase respect. 
Live an honorable life and respect will find you. This need to demand respect, and you see it when people say, yeah, he disrespected me, she disrespected me. This whole vernacular of our society, it's misguided. It's not about demanding or chasing respect. I tr- you gotta trust me on this one, thank you, my man. Is you have to, if you live an honorable life, thank you, Jonathan, very much. Let me drink. Come on. I've been preaching like a lunatic lately. A voice is shot. Uh, If we live an honorable life, respect will find you. Number four, your most important mental skill is the ability to think twice. You got to think twice, speak once, not the other way around. You have to be able to reflect. And again, it's the second choice, not the first one. And that comes from the ability to think twice. That's the greatest gift we have as human beings is the ability to reflect and think twice before we speak like, hmm, 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 hmm. Now I'll talk. Thinking twice is a mission critical skill set for, for leadership. And lastly, the worst kind of selfishness is self-pity. It takes the energy out of everyone in the room. You ever been in a team and somebody's just like, brings in that spirit of heaviness and they're disheartened? And I'm not tell- saying that we all got to live fake and, and up. There's times where our team needs us to pull up their, their heart is heavy about something. I'm talking about this perpetual um, state of, of mind and being in which you just live with self-pity. You just suck the air out of the room. It's the worst kind of selfishness is self-pity because it just takes the energy out of everything. And it makes the whole entirely about the one. So you really got to ask yourself, I don't want to get into a habit of perpetually being downcast in every setting that I'm in and getting the attention of self, that self-pity uh, falsely creates. So just be highly aware of that. Okay, let's go to these verses. I got to give this to you real, real quick this morning. Exodus 15 says that then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Well, that's, that's normal. Yeah, right. Uh, we need water. There's bitter waters. Oh, the Lord shows me a tree. I don't need a tree. I need water. And he threw it into the water. That's the logical next step. But this was all revelation. And it was a revelation of a coming tree called the cross that can be applied to anything that is bitter, broken, and cursed, and it turns it sweet. It's a type of, it's a type of redemption. This is a powerful picture of that same tree. And, for, and whenever there is salvation, it's always precipitated by revelation. The Holy Spirit had to show Moses uh, how to redeem these waters as the Holy Spirit has to reveal Christ to every heart that is saved. So there's a revelation of this tree, like that's not the agent to heal that condition, but that was the mystery of Christ and the cross. Why would he become the curse to break the curse? But it was a type of the coming salvation through that tree. Exodus 15 goes on to say, there, there he made for them a statute and regulation. There And there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. 
Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the water. What a great place. Exodus 16.4 then says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion, that I may test them. They weren't allowed to gather up more than one day. This walk with God is a daily walk, not a, a weekly walk or a yearly walk. It's a daily intimate relationship. So he said, there's plenty here, but only take that which is necessary for the day because tomorrow I want to miraculously feed you again. And so he simply instructed them to do that. He wanted to see, even though there were other options, even though they didn't fully comprehend it, he wanted to see, will they live by the teaching of my word? Because I have far more important things to tell them later, but they're going to practice, they're going to practice their walk of faith with areas of provision so that greater demonstrations of faith over the enemy, not simply to receive bread. God does miracle provisions of our health and providing money for us in order to build momentum in our life so we can exercise faith toward things that really matter later over the enemy and to see strongholds broken. So, but these are all important processes in our life when it comes to provision, asking God for provision for school, for whatever it is in your life. And I'm just telling you again, I was so broke when I went to college, I stole food from other people's rooms. I, 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 I was broke. Can somebody say amen? Someone's going, did he really just say he stole food because I just stole some food this morning and I didn't know the Lord had my mail like that. What's he talking about? No car, no money. I should show you my wardrobe. Singular, there was no plural to that wardrobe. The one thing going for me was I was in love, though. <laughs> I did have love right there. Had no cash. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, she actually had some money, so that was a good thing, too. So she could actually, <laughs> she did. She was, in, she was investing in my ministry right off the bat. I was broke. Was I broke, Karen? Broke. Hitchhike broke. Um, and so the Lord provided supernaturally, and it built a sense of God, the one that I was on his radar screen, that he knew my name. He cared about my life through provision of some tuition and stuff that I was packed up and leaving, and I, I've told that story several times. But the Lord was really building my ability to love his word and trust his word. So in the context of those miracles, something happens in Numbers chapter 11 in the whole genre of the wilderness wanderings. I want to show you, and I want to give you this core life principle of mine that I've sought to practice that has probably brought more fruitfulness and sustainability of leadership in my leadership life and sustainability of relationships than any other principle in scripture. And it's the principle, the abstinence from wine. So here's, here's typically how this works and you see it through the nation of Israel. Numbers chapter 11, verse one. Numbers 11, one. First of all, freedom is all about your healthy edge. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. 
When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 says, the rabble. There's no word used in the King James for rabble. It's used in other translations, and it literally is found in, in the New Testament of those that were called market loungers. Uh, these are people who are hanging out doing nothing. Okay, It says the rabble who were among them, among the nation of Israel, had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? So the rabble are Egyptians that got caught up in the exodus and left because they had, they're kind of these people that were just lounging with no purpose in life. And so they were hanger honors. They were people that lived on the edge of Israel, not, they were as far away from Moses and, and, and Joshua as you could get. Far away from uh, the glory and the cloud and the fire. They, these were people that came recently. They were just out of Egypt, but they were the rabble. It was a term used for people that aren't connected to anything. It's on the edges, no real purpose. They're just on the edge, and they're hanging out on the edge, and they were the first to gripe, the first to complain. People without purpose are often the most difficult to deal with because they are just lazy at the edge. Now watch this. It's interesting that in the human construction, our human psyche, we oftentimes, our negativity is about things that are the most peripheral in life to us. The stuff that's our edges. How people drive, how people do this. We are like the rabble, our edge is very negative in life. You say, well, the important stuff, I, I'm good, I edify people, I lift people up, but I'm really lazy with my edge. So the rabble on the edge began to complain, and they began to complain to a level that the Lord brought judgment to the edge or the outskirts of the camp. So my question this morning, real quickly, learning how to walk in an abstinence from wine is Jesus the Lord over your outer edge? The Lord wants us to speak well of life's trivial pursuits. I used to tell my kids, casual lying is how professional liars practice. I was telling the CLC kids yesterday, the church, uh, the church leadership, CCL. Did I get it right? Yeah. Uh, students that my kids, when they were little, we'd have... Uh, did you brush your teeth test? And they had four little kids. Everybody brush their teeth, they go in there and it's just chaos and stuff flying all over water everywhere. Uh, you know, spit everywhere. And then they would come out and I'd say, did you brush your teeth? Yes, all four said yes. I said, okay, show daddy. And they'd have to walk in front of my face and blow in my face. Whoa, okay. Colgate, Colgate, Doritos, peanut butter, something else in there, no son. Why did you tell me you brushed your teeth, son? And he's crying a whole bit. And I would say, son, listen, casual liar, casual lying is how professional liars practice. Okay. Most people think in this room that you're a positive, optimistic person. But let me ask you a question. Is there a segment of trivial things in your life that you constantly gripe about? Peripheral things that aren't central to your life. You're practicing with the use of language and words, and language and words is how reality is constructed. 
the rabble were the most negative, the outskirts, the edge. You might think that how somebody drives or the state of some food or the state of whatever or some teach, this, that, it's just a trivial thing and you just have practice and you're just, you easily engage in the outer edge of just being a negative person. Now here's another area that we get negative with just as easily as the outer edge. Freedom is all about your healthy core. Numbers 12.1 says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Because of the Cushite woman, there was an interracial marriage based on their definition of race, whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite. So Miriam and Aaron are at the center, not the edge. There's two places that we have this weird license. We gripe about stuff that doesn't matter, and we're negative about the things we are most familiar with, the things that we know best, like our family members. Well, I have a special license to be negative because I'm so close and so familiar. So Miriam and Aaron began to whine about Moses, which was the core of their life. They adopted the traits of what I call a schoolyard child. I am especially aware, friends, of those I love and those I lead. The Miriam and Aaron's are the Moseses that I serve in my life. I do not have a special license to rip them because I'm familiar with them. Just because we're close in the core does not give me some kingdom pass to whine and complain about things in their life that are just between us. We just keep it in the room. Interesting that when the edge got core, uh, 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 the edge got negative, the rabble were complaining. Miriam and Aaron were complaining in the core. Do you know what happens when the edge is negative, when your edge is negative and your core relationships are negative? Numbers 14.1 says, then the entire congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Aaron and Moses. The key to a healthy whole is to keep your edge and your core godly. I've had to practice and rewire myself not to gripe about stuff that doesn't matter. And I've had to rewire myself not to feel a license to be negative about those that are closest to me, as though I have some special privilege to do that in the work environment or the home environment. When your edge is negative and your core is negative, mark my word, the whole of you becomes rotted and polluted. But when you keep your edge healthy, you keep your core healthy, I promise that everything in between about you is going to remain pure, positive, uplifting, and godly and honorable to the Lord. So let's lay down the need to gripe about trivial pursuits. Let's don't be rabble. And let's not be Aaron and Miriam and gripe against Moses in that sense. Of course, they had to solve problems. Of course, they had to deal with reality. Of course, there had to be correction. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a negativity about things that we have no need to be negative about. It's better to keep our mouth shut. I don't want the entirety of what I lead to rot. 
I don't want the whole congregation to grumble, the whole organization to grumble because somehow I opened up the gates at my edge and at my core to pollute everything in between. So that's been one of the most important life principles I have ever had to grapple with and adopt. Father, we just ask Jesus as we go about our day that there would be an abstinence of wine. Father, for some of us, we grew up and this was a way of life all the time in our houses. Father, teach us and grow us, Lord, by your word to be a different kind of people. We love you, we praise you. Lord, just give us momentum in our studies, all of us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless everybody. We'll see you back. Have a great day in school.